is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where Democrats in the Florida House are trying to engineer a special session on coronavirus. Representative Evan Jenny says enough lawmakers have now submitted a formal request to the Secretary of State that she is legally required to poll the entire legislature. Those were all submitted to the Secretary of State. Uh, the process now that will occur is the Secretary of State will send out an official poll um, to all the members of the legislature, uh, asking them if they would like uh, a special session or if they don't want a special session. Um, then at that point, uh, the votes will be tallied, and I believe it's two-thirds of the legislature needs to approve it. Um, so we're not holding our breath on this, but we, we are going to try to take our, our shot in the dark. Representative Jenny is our guest today on the Sunrise Interview. Democrats in the state Senate hold an online press conference to demand more changes in the state unemployment system. You'll hear why from five of them. Despite spending more than $100 million bucks to try to patch the system together, Florida's unemployment compensation system is still leading to anger, frustration, tears, and even a lawsuit. New stats from the Labor Department in Washington show more Floridians filed first-time unemployment claims last week than any other state in the nation. We'll also have your daily calendar of events, and we have two stories about Florida man and Florida woman, including a judge who's in trouble for defending her son. And now, the top stories on Sunrise for Friday, May 1st. That makes it May Day, which is all the more appropriate during the COVID-19 crisis. First, the numbers. There have now been 33,690 confirmed cases of coronavirus in Florida. The death toll has reached 1,268, including 50 new fatalities reported in the past day. Democrats in the Florida Senate say it's time for the state to stop screwing around with the unemployment system and get money out to the people who need it. And if the governor won't do it, Senator Jose Javier Rodriguez of Miami says the legislature will have to hold a special session to take care of the problem. If the governor does not act, we have been very clear that we're going to be calling for a special session in order for the legislature to act. And I want to, I want to pause briefly and make it absolutely clear that the governor does have the power to make the changes that we're asking for, including improving the amount of money that folks receive. We are the stingiest state in the entire country. Only 12 weeks capped at 275 is terrible. Puts us at the bottom of the entire country. Uh, under chapter 252, the governor does have power to waive regulatory restrictions during the emergency. He's already done that with waiting weeks as we asked for. He's already done that uh, with the work search requirement as we asked for. It is legally and, and, and logically inconsistent for the governor to say that he has power to waive certain requirements and yet he can't waive cats. Also, as part of his executive authority, he, he uh, issued order 2052 and in section four of his emergency declaration, he makes it clear agencies have the power to appropriate uh, and disperse funds. Again, if the governor is saying he does, he, as he has suggested, that he may not have the power to do certain things that we're asking him to do, that is not the case. If he says he can't, in reality, what he's saying is he won't. And if he won't, we will call for action. The snafus at the state unemployment office are now the stuff of legend. In fact, they've graduated to full-on foobar. For starters, Senator Janet Cruz of Tampa says the state's unemployment web portal turned out to be a $70 million joke. 
Florida's experienced the slowest rate of processing unemployment claims amidst this crisis. And we are told it's bureaucratic red tape. I called yesterday when I hollered about the number of cases that have been, uh, have been declined. You know, he, he rolled right into this, uh, you know, this talking point about how there's, you know, so much fraud. And I said, really, man, is that what you're going to tell me today? that the system is riddled with fraud. I have hundreds of people calling my office because they can't feed their kids and you wanna focus on fraud. It's just another damn excuse for a system that doesn't work. Florida did not pay out more than 1,000 applicants in a single day until April 12th. People in five and six weeks out, out of work, but we didn't pay a damn dime until April 12th. You know, it's a broken website. We just have to know about these problems. We've, we've known about them. We've complained about them. It's clear that the problem was with the opinion held by too many, that those who are down on their luck, those who are without a job or in need of assistance are in some way unworthy of the state's help. Some kind of second-class citizen that didn't need to be paid attention to until guess what? Mainstream Florida needs um, help. Mainstream Florida is applying for unemployment, and guess what? Everyone knows what a debacle and what a fleecing of Floridians this website is and how shameful it is that we are designed to watch people suffer. The state is spending more than $100 million to patch that system together, most of the money paying for call centers to handle all the questions about filing a claim. But Senator Annette Tadeo of Miami says that's been just as bad as the web portal. Applicants are reporting that when they call the help centers that the FDLO set up to help with call wait times, on top of still being put on hold for hours, those that get through are told by the attendant that they were hired as a third party and did not have enough training to answer their questions. So yes, that's what people are getting on the other end of the line after waiting for hours. Listen, many of these workers in my community and all of my colleagues' communities don't have a credit card to go to the grocery store or to Sedanos to buy their groceries. And many don't even bank. We have people lining up at 3 a.m. for food distributions. That is hunger, plain and simple. The delay in handing out the CARES Act funds to our gig workers is frankly criminal. Senator Lori Berman of Palm Beach County says the sad truth is that the system was designed to make it as hard as possible to apply for benefits, and it was failing Floridians long before the pandemic. Before the whole problem even started, just 11% of people who applied got unemployment insurance in Florida. Eight out of nine workers were denied, and only one out of nine workers got benefits. The system has worked exactly the way it was designed to to minimize the number of jobless Floridians getting benefits. The meager amount of $275 a week for 12 weeks for a grand total of 3,300 was never anticipated to help those in true trouble. The Connect system has been dysfunctional since its inception and the pandemic has only brought it to light. All Floridians deserve better. This may sound like politics as usual, but Senator Gary Farmer of Broward County says, tell that to the people who stand in free food lines for hours because they haven't been able to get unemployment money. Every senator on this call has been fielding hundreds of phone calls from constituents who are scared, who are crying, 
who don't know how they are going to feed their families. And they are simply looking for the unemployment benefits to which they are legally entitled. It's been two months now and people cannot get their claims paid. It's very hard not to conclude that this has all been done intentionally. I think what we're also seeing today is that 20 years of Republican leadership and the policies they have implemented are coming home to roost. Our colleagues have passed laws which set up hurdles and hoops and restrictions on getting these payments. It leads most to conclude that this is done intentionally to delay and deny payments. Now, with this system that constantly breaks and freezes and people are told they're ineligible when they're eligible or people can't even get confirmation that their claim has been filed, it leads us to conclude that the Florida DEO and our executive branch are intentionally attempting to pay out as little money as possible. And then combined with the reopening of businesses, they can then just say, oh, okay, it's magic. We fixed it. Now we don't need to pay these benefits out. That's what people are starting to think. And that is a rational conclusion from this lack of action and lack of ability to fix a system that is desperately needed. More people in Florida filed initial unemployment claims last week than any other state in the nation. The U.S. Department of Labor says more than 3.8 million unemployment claims were filed nationwide, including 432,000 from the Sunshine State. That big increase is the result of improvements in the state's dysfunctional system, but people are still having trouble getting connected, and many claimants are now getting messages saying they're ineligible without being told why. Earlier this week, the state announced anyone who applied before April 5th must now go through the entire sign-up process again. As of Thursday, Florida's unemployment dashboard shows 916,000 unique claims for jobless benefits. That represents about 10% of the state's workforce. Less than half of those claims have actually been paid. 40% of them were rejected, and applicants were advised to try again. The final report from the governor's reopen task force has been released. It includes plans for theme parks, restaurants, nightclubs, hair salons, casinos, vacation rentals, many other businesses crucial to the state economy. It is a blueprint of sorts, but Governor Ron DeSantis is not actually obligated to follow the blueprint. The governor has already announced his plan for phase one of the reopening. It allows restaurants to open at 25% of capacity indoors and all outdoor seating as long as there's a six-foot social distance and parties are less than 10. Retail stores, museums, and libraries could also reopen at 25% capacity, and the governor says elective surgeries can resume. I think the main changes that you're going to see are the elective surgeries are able to resume, and that's going to take place statewide. People talk about elective surgeries as if it's something like cosmetic surgery or something that doesn't need to happen. Elective, in most cases, just means it's elective exactly when you schedule it, but it's usually something you need to get done. So I want that to be turned back on. The requirements of that is that the hospitals represent, they're going to continue to maintain a surge capacity if, if we see an uptick in COVID, that they have adequate PPE and aren't going to re rely on the state for that, and that they're willing, able to proactively work with the long-term care facilities and nursing homes in their communities uh, to be able to prevent outbreaks. And I think they're all going to be willing to do that. The governor's also looking forward to the end of the lockdown for strictly personal reasons. He'd like his parents to meet their new granddaughter, Mamie. It's been very difficult for a lot of people, including me. I um, probably, you know, since she was born and just in the last couple weeks, you know, it's occurred to me, none of my family has, has seen her. She's not been held by a single 
person in any of our families. My wife and kids, they have not left the house since February except to give birth. We've not just gone to do a park as a family. We've not just gone and had lunch somewhere as a family. And so the little things that I think have changed has really had an impression on me. I think about kids not being able to place, compete in sports. I think about the things that families used to do and take for granted. You know, those are moments that you just can't get back. And that's one of the reasons why I'm convinced that we can uh, take this step. We'll be smart. We'll be safe. We'll do it step by step. But, but we, we should have hope. We, we're very resourceful. We're very innovative. We can get this done. Uh, it's not going to happen overnight. If, I, if there was some magic thing I could flip the switch and say everything's fine, I would do it. Trust me. It just doesn't work that way. But, but we need to get there. And um, you know, I'd like to be able to get in a situation where uh, her grandparents can come see her. Next up on the Sunrise interview, we talk with State Representative Evan Jenny of Broward County, who is one of the Democrats trying to get the legislature back to the Capitol for a special session to deal with COVID-19. You're listening to the Sunrise Podcast from Florida Politics. Welcome back to Sunrise. Our guest today is State Representative Evan Jenny of Dania Beach, one of the lawmakers who signed a formal request for the legislature to hold a special session this summer to deal with the health care, economic, and political aspects of coronavirus. It's a long shot, but it's probably their best shot since Republicans control the House and the Senate. Well, basically, uh, Representative DuBose and myself um, with a lot of our Democratic colleagues in the House um, just saw some really glaring problems that I think every Floridian is aware of at this point. And, and there's a lot more than what we called for, uh, but we think this is a solid place to start. Um, looking at the unemployment system and real policy changes that can be made uh, to help Floridians out right now in this time. Um, looking at Medicaid expansion as well for the special session call. Uh, and that's quite simply because we know there's going to be an avalanche of medical bills headed in a lot of people who say um, Florida is wildly uninsured. And by expanding Medicaid at this point, uh, we feel like we could save a lot of people from financial ruin. And finally, dealing with the elections code and making sure that we have a, fa- a fair, free and safe election uh, as we as we approach that in the coming months. Uh, and there's ways to do that and to make it safer, to make sure we have good turnout. I, I don't want Florida to turn in on Election Day, uh, especially if we're in the middle, still in the middle of this. Uh, I don't want Florida to turn into a place that looks like Wisconsin did a, a couple of days ago, I guess. Everything seems to bleed into one another. Uh, but, you know, just a week or so ago, we saw, or two weeks, we saw what happened in Wisconsin. Uh, it was a very dangerous setup that they had there, but they went through with it. Uh, and we have some thing we think could really uh, in terms of hard concrete policy uh, that could save a lot of people a lot of stress uh, and time uh, and safety uh, and we think that is of the paramount uh, right now to to make sure that we can we can have our elections in that way now, is, is the main thrust with elections going to more make it easier to vote by mail is that the idea there yes that is an idea and, and to be completely honest to give credit where credit is absolutely due uh, a lot of the credit for, for a lot of the ideas that I think we would definitely uh, pursue came from our very own uh, former senator and current state representative, Geraldine Thompson, in Central Florida, who's done a lot, a lot of really good work without the credit she deserves over the last, uh, her entire career, but especially these last few years that she's been in the House again. Um, you know, requiring, uh, you know, vote-by-mail ballots to include return postage, uh, and then, you know, we need to set up a funding mechanism for that. But if we're in special, we can do that. 
um, authorizing supervisors of elections um, uh, during an emergency like the one we're in to move in a county exclusively to vote by mail, uh, because we're starting to see some of that um, come out just in terms of treating different counties differently, uh, depending on what the COVID-19 numbers look like in a specific locale. So, yeah, a lot of it would have to do with that. And to be honest and giving credit where it's due again is it comes from a lot of it comes from the hard work of Senator and Representative Geraldine Thompson. Now, let's talk about the Medicaid expansion, which is another one of the concerns. You really is is considering how resistant the Republican leadership has been. Is even a covid-19 pandemic enough to make them move? You know, I've always found uh, that the most difficult thing in the legislature, everybody talks about how difficult it can be in the legislature to get work done and, and to get things across the finish line. I have consistently found the most common or the most difficult thing um, to get the legislature to admit uh, is that they made a mistake in the recent uh, past. Um, that would require them to have that um, that moment of, of reconciliation that they did not, in fact, do the right thing when it came to um, uh, the Affordable Health Care Act. Um, it is that would be out of all of it. I think that is the most difficult lift um, to get them to agree to. Uh, they were militantly, militantly against this um, at the time. Um, there were some pretty epic uh, floor battles over this. Um, I believe at one point when I was out of the legislature, uh, reading of all the bills to protest it, um, a lot of no votes on, on budgets that were otherwise in pretty good shape uh, due to the non-inclusion of that. But if you really look uh, at what we could do, um, there's a lot that, that could help out, you know, changing specific dates and timelines. Um, and, and, you know, you'd have to take a look at when the special section actually occurred. Uh, but the, the bill, you know, we could give it, uh, ACA, a, uh, uh, a quick deadline uh, for submissions of uh, SPAs, state plan amendments, uh, and get them to turn that around to the federal and make a state plan amendment there. Uh, that could have a huge impact on the type and, and the numbers of Floridians that are covered uh, because we're genuinely, genuinely concerned um, that, you know, there's going to be a lot of peace, people facing real financial disaster because of medical bills that come out of this thing. Um, you know, there's we can we can require uh, ACA uh, to request that that SPA be approved retroactively and make sure that people are being taken care of that way. And just really the overall streamlining of the Medicaid application if they don't want to expand. Uh, but, you know, the, uh, eligibility determination, enrollment processes, uh, there's a lot of different things we could do to make it a lot easier for folks to get in there uh, and get the health care that they actually need right now, especially when we're in the middle of a health crisis. So did I just hear you say you don't need full-on Medicaid expansion to start to draw down some of that money? Well, look, here basically what it would do, we would, in, in our opinion, um, requiring ACA to immediately submit that state plan amendment uh, to the federal CMS, uh, in order to extend Medicaid eligibility um, to adults uh, and to more adults, uh, that would we would that would be required of that to get that sent up there, um, and then you know work within that to require ACA to make sure that we get this right, uh, so that we have retroactivity back to the quarter that they're submitted, um, because what's going to happen is a lot of people are going to get hit with these bills from testing and other uh, in other instances of having to be hospitalized. Um, because every single person that's hospitalized is going to be hit with a massive bill. The question becomes, are they insured or are they not? And we just think it would be the proper thing to do to get, get these folks
almost back in line where they where they uh, can have that done. Um, there are, you know, we can do more internally within the state to kind of put down some of the barriers there. Uh, but for the overall, we do think the federal government needs to be involved. Uh, but there are things we can do at home to help that along. So that, that's really where we're at with that. Okay. Now, technically, you've got enough of the House members have now signed a petition asking for a special session. What's the process? Correct. Uh, well, the process now is uh, those were all submitted to the Secretary of State. Uh, the process now that will occur is the Secretary of State will send out an official poll um, to all the members of the legislature uh, asking them if they would like uh, a special session or if they don't want a special session. Um, then at that point, uh, the votes will be tallied, and I believe it's two-thirds of the legislature needs to approve it. Um, so we're not holding our breath on this, but we, we are going to try to take our, our shot in the dark. 32 state lawmakers had to send a formal request to trigger the poll by the Secretary of State. That's 20% of the membership in the legislature. And then it takes a three-fifths vote of the membership to force a special session. Your calendar of events today is blissfully short. Florida Power and Light plans to begin operating four new solar power plants today. They're going online in Suwannee, Palm Beach, Okeechobee, and Manatee counties. Finally, it's time once again for the continuing adventures of Florida Man and his better half. A Florida woman who works as a circuit judge in Tallahassee is accused of violating standards by acting as her son's attorney when he was arrested in a shooting incident. The Judicial Qualifications Commission alleges that Barbara Hobbs violated judicial canons by acting as her son's lawyer when she was assigned to preside over felony cases at the same time in Leon County. The case has since been transferred to another circuit where her son is charged with attempted murder. The commission made other allegations against Hobbs, including that she improperly failed to recuse herself from cases involving an attorney who had represented her son on an earlier charge of driving under the influence. And a Florida man is busted with enough fentanyl to kill half a million people. Hernando County deputies searched the Brooksville home of 43-year-old David Gale after he was arrested for dealing drugs last week. They discovered more than two pounds of the synthetic drug fentanyl and methamphetamine, a mixture commonly known as a goofball. A press release from the sheriff's office says that would have been enough fentanyl to kill 500,000 people. Deputies also found cocaine, oxycodone, hashish, and marijuana. So Gale's charged with one count of trafficking fentanyl, one count of trafficking meth, plus separate counts of possession for each of the other drugs. That's it for this episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again Monday as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.